Hello and welcome to the Lancet Psychiatry Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about one of the essays in our Insight section, and this is an essay about global mental health. It's written by Temitope Admosu, who is a research student at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience at King's College London. Now, Tope's uh, subject of interest is child mental health and neurodevelopmental disorder, uh, specifically in Sierra Leone. I'm really pleased uh, that uh, Tope's in the studio. Welcome to the Lancet Psychiatry Podcast. Thank you, Niall. And you have a personal angle on the subject as well as a professional one. And the essay is sort of about your own uh, journey in life and the kind of way in which it's led you to thinking about uh, issues around global mental health and, mm -hmm. and how we think about mental health and mental illness and how that, that, that crosses culture. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if you could start by taking us right back to the beginning and telling us a bit about, about yourself. Yeah. So I talk in this essay um, about my experience of being born and raised in England to Nigerian parents who um, emigrated here um, for educational reasons and decided to stay here. Um, I also talk about my experience of being raised in a very religious setting and how my understanding and construction of mental health illness um, became and grew around this idea of religion and spirituality um, before I went into um, an educated side of understanding mental health illness as well. Um, so in the essay I talk a bit about my own personal experience of um, growing up and having speech difficulties and some of the experiences and some of the interventions that my mum decided to, to use. And these interventions were based on her own beliefs and understanding of being raised in Nigeria and generally what you would do with a child that has such difficulties. I think the thing which interested me about this essay was that it's not just that the idea of treatment's different, but the very way in which your behaviour as, as a child is was thought about mm -hmm. was was sort of up for for, for dispute. Yes. So you were experiencing what was diagnosed as selective mutism, mm -hmm. and that was seen. I think it's fair to say medically, one would say, well, this is this is a, a problem. Mm -hmm. This is something which we need to offer treatment mm -hmm. for. But your mother had a slightly different angle on yes. this. Yes, so this was something that was very much celebrated in my family and it was actually seen as a blessing. It coincided with the passing of my grandfather who had similar quiet, calm traits. So um, amongst three siblings, I was the quietest one. And my parents, and I was um, I was praised for being so quiet and they always talked about how glorious it was to have me um, as a child who was so quiet and withdrawn and it meant that I had a quite a calming soul and was a reinvention of my grandfather who had died. So it was never seen as a problem until I started school and it was identified as a problem by teachers to my parents. And so what you have here is the potential for a conflict mm -hmm. and you have and that you have professionals who are saying, this is this is an issue, we need to do something about this. Mm -hmm. And for your parents who are in the situation where they've come from Nigeria to the UK, are constructing this, this new life, have lost a, a, a parent, mm -hmm. and there's something quite comforting mm -hmm. uh, and quite positive about uh, your uh, behaviour, about your Absolutely. presentation. So it was as if it was the presence of my grandfather and he was giving us his blessing about being in the UK and the life that we'd chosen to settle there. So that so, same. So how can you resolve that? 
How did your parents resolve that? How did your teachers resolve that? So this is the kind of the, um, I don't want to say battle, <laughs> but the battle that um, and the tensions that were drawn between my mother's stance of my daughter does not have a problem and then teachers, GP, nurses saying that there is a problem. She's not socialising in the way that we understand that she should socialise. So for some time, my mother, um, and she's quite proud of her stubbornness in that actually this is fine. And as, as I say in the essay, that she um, contacted other people in her network, and that included my grandmother, who was in Nigeria, and we were Muslims at the time, so the, the imam as well, to try to understand, well, she wanted to understand why it was seen as a problem here and what she could do. Um, and at the same time, I was being referred to a speech and language therapist. I was being referred to CAMS um, by school and by the GP. So that was a tension that I talk about in the essay. So a lot of my mother's interventions included the prayers, um, readings from the Quran as well, um, that she believed would really help me to be able to um, socialise a bit better in school, but not to lose the essence of who I was and what I was. And that continued to be praised at home. Um, I also speak in the essay about later, um, because some sanctions were being um, placed on my mum, that she then agreed for me to go for speech and language therapy. So I did undergo speech and language therapy as well. So it was about straddling both of those interventions, both my mother's um, both my mother's traditional interventions as well as interventions from um, the speech and language therapy here. And that being something that I've always had to do in life was straddle both cultures, really, as um, a Nigerian person born in Britain. And that can be a, a very difficult thing. But it can also be quite a positive thing, mm -hmm. I think. And certainly you ended up with a positive result mm -hmm. from what you describe initially as, as a battle. Looking back on that point in your life, how do you feel about it now? Um, I guess, as, as you said, I, I've taken and drawn the positives from it. It's something that as always, I've always been on that fine line. I, I've always been curious about trying to understand everything in a cultural context. So, yeah, how do I feel about that now? Looking back on there, I'm quite glad that my mother still stood her ground. Um, and to this day, she still says that it's her prayers that <laughs> were very helpful, but also that I was able to have other interventions around speech and language therapists. And I guess there's something about um, using both that has been something that I've carried on throughout um, both my career and personally in, in understanding both and understanding that there is a room for both, that one doesn't have to um, um, outmatch the other, and one doesn't have to exclude the other, but there's always a place for both to be able to be respected and genuinely understood. I think that the idea of what we might term informal networks of care, so informal consultations about health and, and well-being and behaviour, mm -hmm. these are things which maybe in all of medicine are not really appreciated mm -hmm. uh, and, and not really explored as much as they might be. And in the essay, uh, one of the implications I get from it is that global mental health is, is one of those cases where uh, there are situations in low-income countries and middle-income countries where just seeing things as a treatment gap mm -hmm. is an oversimplification and perhaps not a very helpful mm -hmm. oversimplification. Mm -hmm. So, and going back to my own example with my mother, as I said, it was technically be seen as if there was a, I fell into that huge treatment gap that my mother's interventions weren't acknowledged as evidence-based approaches. So all that she was doing, and it was something that was very distressing, she was seeking help in all the places that she felt comfortable in, 
none of that was actually acknowledged as her doing anything. And then at a macro level, that's around global mental health, which is what I talk about as well in terms of this treatment gap, that not really um, being curious and wanting to understand what Indigenous people do and trying to get a grip and understand that and looking over that as if they're, they're not, that's not an evidence-based approach, so it's not counted, is where this treatment gap fall, falls into. And is what I write in the essay about really trying to probe and understand and respectfully and curiously try to, to understand what these interventions are. And how does this apply to your own work? As I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, you've been working in Sierra Leone mm -hmm. and you've been looking at child mental health and neurodevelopmental disorders mm -hmm. there. So how do your own personal experiences inform your work? Yeah, so I guess so. the um, project that I'm doing has two elements to it. So one is the epidemiological side of trying to understand what these mental health disorders and neurodevelopmental disorders are. But we're also taking an inquiry through an anthropology um, perspective to really understand how parents perceive some of these difficulties. So it's in early child development stage. So when do they recognise that there is a difficulty? Do they recognise it is a difficulty? How do they understand um, these dif different um, disorders that we would classify? How do they see it? How do they make sense of it? Where does the decision making lie? And then also understanding what their help seeking behaviours are and who do they go to for treatment? It might not be a CAMS nurse, it might not be the hospital, but understanding and curiously trying to understand where they go to and make sense of that as well. So this is about making meaning of experience mm -hmm. and it, it strikes me looking at your own story that there are, are various different meanings mm -hmm. which have been made of, of what you experienced and you have your own version of it, your mother has her <laughs> own version of it clearly and this is something which I think psychiatry can neglect quite a bit mm -hmm. which is if you simply take the model that there's something wrong and you fix it mm -hmm. but the person has experienced something. Mm -hmm. They've experienced something quite profound. And simply saying that there was something wrong and now it's better mm -hmm. is perhaps too simple a way to look at it. Mm -hmm. And then when uh, we look at how that's framed by the culture as well, um, because in the end we all live in communities and, mm -hmm. and, and have to exist within that, that setting. Mm -hmm. So that process strikes me as being firstly very neglected and secondly mm -hmm. kind of vital. Yeah, yeah. So one of the key things that I'm trying to understand is how mental health illness, neurodevelopmental disorders are conceptualised. So how is it understood? It might not be seen as an illness. Um, so really trying to unpick how that is seen by mothers or grandmothers or, or fathers who are in the home to try and understand that. And as you said, it is something that's often neglected. And with that, we then build interventions on, on what we know rather than understanding their experiences and how this um, illness and this process is experienced by caregivers or by children. And so what's the way forward? Is it possible, do you think, to reconcile what we might broadly term Western approaches and then local approaches? So um, in the essay, I do talk about um, this isn't, it's not recreating the wheel. This is something that has happened in the past where different um, conceptual, different worldviews are respected and understood and that there's that integration. So I guess one of the things that I'm saying in the essay is global mental health, where we're at, we can, do, we can still do that. We don't have to um, have one over the other. We don't have to um, ignore one or say that we can't go this way, we can't go that, but there is room for both and, and really understanding how they um, integrate and how they can as they have in the past. And this involves, I think, empowerment. Mm -hmm. And this involves 
not just local communities being empowered, but also people who are involved in the global mental health movement from high-income settings uh, respecting mm -hmm. the worldview, understanding the worldview, mm -hmm. really doing a bit of anthropology yeah. uh, and yeah. also basic listening, mm -hmm. as well as coming up with bright ideas for, yeah. say, task shifting or whatever we're doing yeah. this week. Yeah. So there's something around um, humility and taking that stance and, as you said, is respecting and genuinely um, listening to what other people have to say and yeah, not parachuting in with the answers and taking that step back and taking the space to actually think and be curious and question and understand. And that might apply in high-income settings as well. It strikes me that what you've yeah. described is a particularly stark case, which is global mental health, mm -hmm. where what we have in the way that, and I'm using we in terms of high-income psychiatry, mm -hmm. uh, we frame things in terms of DSM or ICD, and so those those mindsets are there mm -hmm. in approaching low-income countries, and, mm -hmm. and that is can be a very jarring thing. But that strikes me as being an extreme example of maybe a process which psychiatry needs to address generally in, in high-income countries, mm -hmm. which is looking at the individual and community meaning that people make of extreme emotions or unusual experiences. Mm -hmm. So uh, exactly as you, you say, we've got huge disparities in people from BME backgrounds and communities accessing, and um, whether it's psychological therapies or mental health services. So really taking that step similar to global mental health to really understand um, how people's meanings, how people make sense of mental health illness and their explanatory models and conceptualizations. I always give the analogy that um, even if you are as similar to my mother, that being born and raised in Nigeria, once she comes to the UK, her beliefs and conceptualizations are not left at Heathrow or Gatwick. It's something that she still carries with her every day. And 38 years later, she still strongly believes what she believed in Nigeria as well as being here. So definitely there is something about um, this approach being brought to high-income countries for BME communities. And this reminds me of what's happening with the Mental Health Act review at the moment, mm -hmm. which is that what you have here is a piece of legislation which is supposedly a neutral uh, piece of legislation, the Mental Health Act, which is designed uh, for medical purposes, mm -hmm. and yet, in practice, it seems as if it results in, in quite a discriminatory mm -hmm. system, uh, mm -hmm. discriminating against BME individuals. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, it, exactly, um, the Mental Health Act review, we've and picked it and looked at it um, as well and seeing that it is based very much on Eurocentric um, worldview and ideology and that in itself alienates and um, anything that deviates from this is not seen as normal and not classed as normal and is something that um, we found quite difficult in the clinical um, role as well. So the message seems to be that uh, global mental health needs to think globally. Yes. Brilliant. Tope, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Niall. And thank you for downloading this podcast and listening to it. I do hope that you'll join us again next time. But for now, goodbye.